Hey, it's another great fall day here, so time for another walking video. And in the last video, we talked about uh, problems with capitalism and how to fix it. And today we're going to get pretty granular into how to create a peace-based economy given the tools that we have at our fingertips today uh, that didn't really exist even a few years ago. So let's get into it. Um, so we have to understand, first of all, that governments, as we discussed, you know, they, the notion of governments is just a variation on the kingly state, and the kings are in charge of the military, and every government at some level is tied to the military mindset. Maybe there's a few exceptions. And so that is a command and control, a fatherly state, you might say, uh, the right to punish, the right to use force to get your way. And uh, that whole category of human behavior can be grouped and called uh, what I would call hard power. If you don't get your, if you don't get your way, you're going to force it. Now, if we want to create a peace-based economy, I'm not saying that we necessarily give up that right to do that or that that option. Now, I think the peace is a, a challenging topic because. For better or worse, a lot of us associate a peace-based society with the notion of nonviolent resistance. And in nonviolent resistance, this the uh, the resistors they uh, well they suffered a lot. They put themselves in harm's way in a different way than you might do in war, but it's still the net result is harm. So I'm not saying I have a perfect answer, but I think that we're way overbalanced, or as they say, overweighted in the financial world. The world portfolio of ways to work with each other is way overweighted toward war. So. For myself personally, I decided that's handled. I don't need to get involved with war. I want to see how far can we go uh, by using peace as the main operating system. Because I saw for myself in my own life that when I dropped that warlike tendency, which really wasn't basically, a, it's almost never warranted when you really look carefully at your life. A lot, you know, myself. A lot of us who care, we're at war, we're at war with the other, there's people we don't like. You know, we think that somehow the world would be better if they didn't exist. That's not compassion. So having compassion is one thing. Uh, getting your head kicked in in the name of nonviolent resistance is another thing. So let's not mix those two things up. So vegan launch is basically the current state of my 19-year 
exploration into seeing, you know, what tools, what approaches we could assemble to create a peace-based economy. Still an economy, still using money, not really trying to change all that much, really trying to change ourselves and then have that expressed in the world as a viable economic alternative to what is basically global war economy. You know, there might be peaceful corners of it, but that's the real challenge. Are we, you know, where do we, where is peace lacking in our relationships? You know, it starts with ourselves, then the people who are around us, uh, then to the people we want, you know, in government, we, we don't like them. We don't like the people who run the corporations. And it sometimes seems that the only method of solution is to attack. As soon as we do that, then we're using the same core operating plan that's the cause of basically all of our human suffering is that that drive to dominate and use leverage and pain to the other to get our own goals achieved. So you can think about that for a minute, see how you feel about that. Probably if you're still listening, that's good. Because it seems, it would seem, for most of us, it seems impossible. It seems like everything is just a rat race. Everything's brutal. And I've had such amazing experiences in my life that I, I do this because my belief that we can create a peace-based economy is founded on experience, not on wishful thinking at all. And I love telling those stories, but I'm not going to now because I really want to get just to the action plan. So, it, we've talked about what's money. Money's a conversation. Uh, you know, the notion of money is a, you know, money's a measurement of something, just like inches are a measurement of length. And it's really that something that matters more than the measurement. But we've gotten ourselves to focus on the measurement. Okay, no problem, we can, we can play with that. But we, as long as we understand that the, the core concept. And then capitalism is a way of looking at money and social organization. Another road crossing here. And looking at a way to originally power sharing. It wasn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily saying, oh, now we'll live in harmony. It's just that the powerful people wanted to come up with other ways to allocate power other than creating standing armies and being at war with each other. So if you look at other you know, historical eras, like I studied Asian studies and one of the famous eras was the Warring Kingdoms. And what you see in, the, in, in warlike cultures is that, which is basically all of them, 
If you have one central dominating figure, then all of the different sort of tribalist people can drop their guard a little bit and they, they will work together because the bigger threat comes from the very top. And then that's how in China, you know, there's just this history of the creation of dynasties and then the collapse of those dynasties as because, you know, the people that aggregate power, often their children don't have that same desire to crush everybody below them. And gradually the, the dynasties fall apart. And then that lack of central power when that fades away, then now everyone else, they arm up. And that's the warring kingdoms where there was no central power and there was just a was feudalism again with everyone who had smaller power fighting with each other. And so that's a really good definition of feudalism, <laughs> a really good example. So capitalism, in a sense, has, you know, to the extent it's created any peace at all, it's really toned down the violence into much more cunningness and much less tone down the violence, excuse me, between wealthy people, you know, the wealthy and the powerful, it's toned down the violence between the wealthy and the powerful It's at it, some level. It's, it's had that potential. I think that's why the U.S. has been so economically successful because aside from the Civil War, we really haven't had hot wars amongst ourselves, at least not formally. Obviously, we still have a lot of informal hot war going on here. But that was really the main innovation of the United States, was this idea of creating both a financial structure and a political structure that just took away some of the drive for the most extreme violence against of the wealthy and powerful against each other. I mean, that's really it. Let's not make it more than what it was, but that innovation alone, I think is at the root of what's allowed the United States to be such a dominant culture in the world and to turn all of their violence outward. You know, or let's say our violence, I'm an American citizen, a U.S. citizen. So that innovation allowed the wealthy and powerful to agree with each other in, in using money as a surrogate for weapons against each other and then collectivize and create weapons to use against other people who are not of our nationality and you know obviously that's another kind of disaster and the only way we're really going to get a grip on that is to really create some better alternatives so that's why we need to evolve we need to evolve ourselves and we then from an evolved state but taking responsibility for the shape of the culture create something better so that's Maybe if you think that's a good idea, then so good, you're on board with me at that level. But how? How do we get that done? And 
the next part of the puzzle is to understand how we kind of got here in terms of capitalism being so heavily weighted to Wall Street and a relative handful of people making the decisions about how our culture gets built. Because really our culture in, in the West is it's built by a combination of government and the merchant class and that, that interplay. And so what happened was in the early uh, phase of U.S. capitalism, it was just considered business. The idea, that one of the central ideas of capitalism, of course, is that people can get together and pool their resources, their financial resources. And, and just the privilege to make those agreements is something that was innovative as a, as a shift from feudalism where those kind of agreements are not allowed. The king owned everything. And so there wasn't really this idea of people being able to get together in that way. So there were no laws regulating this. Again, and money's just words. They were whatever people wanted to agree with. That was fine. It was called laissez-faire capitalism. No laws. Regu other than the normal whatever business laws, contract law. And that free ability for people who wanted to to raise capital from the public, to have a public conversation about money in that way, that created a lot of aggregation of capital, which led to some you know, famous companies, uh, the Ford Motor Company, General Electric, to name a few, uh, Kodak, <laughs> and the thing that happened though is that uh, fraud and greed, so fraud and greed go hand in hand. And with no regulations, anybody could say anything they wanted, raise money in any way they wanted. And because the economy was so bubbling, the Roaring Twenties. So because of this huge growth in the economy, more and more average people were getting into stock investing and starting to think, well, anything that IPO'd will just grow and they'll get rich that way. Which is fundamentally not actually a correct understanding of how finance works. That's the sad part. And then into this atmosphere, with no governance at all, came people who specifically created financial offers with no intent to do anything other than to defraud the investor. And that was legal because the rule of the only rule of law was buyer beware. And the New York Stock Exchange was formed and they tried to enforce some kind of quality and you know some sort of standards on the behavior of the participants but that was just a small part of the overall financial market. 
And uh, so again, with no regulation, and there was a guy that actually wrote a book. It was called, I think, How I Built the American Public Out of $100 Million, which $100 million was a lot back in the 20s. Why could he write a book like that? Because it was not illegal what he did. There was no crime. Maybe some people might get angry and try to chase him down, but it wasn't like he had any risk of any government action against him because what he did was legal. If people wanted to get built, the government was fine with that. So what does this all mean? If money is speech, then this there was that free speech period, but in... You know, part of the economic collapse of the Great Depression that came from this boom and bust, you know, the bust wasn't caused by fraud per se. It was just things had run their course. People had, you know, people were not investing wisely anymore. And for whatever reason, some things had changed. I I'm not an expert in that whole history. But anyway, into that setting, we had the Great Depression, and the U.S. had a president named Franklin Roosevelt, and he set about regulating capitalism. So how did that work? So we got two laws in the U.S. One was called the Securities Act of 1933, and the other was called the Investment Company Act. And the Securities Act basically made it illegal to do public offers that were not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. So that meant that the freedom of speech to go and publicly ask other people for money was curtailed. You could no longer just take an ad out and say we're raising capital and if you're interested, you know, request our offer. That became illegal unless you complied with the new laws. So of course, complying with the new laws means you had to hire a securities lawyer and that added a whole layer of costs. And so by the time I got this idea about financial organizing in, the, in 2001, and I began to really look into this and I found that if you wanted to raise $50,000 at that time, the typical securities lawyer was gonna charge you $50,000 of legal fees making it basically impossible to raise money. Now, these weren't even public offers. These were just private offers. And so the Securities Act made provisions that people who already knew each other could raise money amongst themselves. Well, that's great if you happen to already be wealthy and you're an entrepreneur and you happen to know a lot of wealthy people who also feel risk-tolerant and the kind uh, point of view about your particular new business you want to start. So I personally believe that the Securities Act has been one of the major causes of the wealth gap in the United States because the ability to use capitalism and aggregate capital and form new businesses basically because of the way those laws were structured became much more the domain of the wealthy. And those at the lower part, the lower economic tiers of our culture really could not afford to raise capital legally. And there were little tiny exemptions. 
And this whole system tied in with the state regulations, but basically raising capital became this highly regulated speech. So we did not have free speech around raising money in, in the U.S., and the rest of the West pretty much followed suit. And so free speech around money has been illegal since 1933, and it still is. So I mentioned the Investment Company Act. An investment company is a company that, that manages investments for other people. So investment company doesn't uh, produce goods and services per se, they just manage money. And so a company like that also became very highly regulated. But on both sides, whether it was a private offer you know, one of the hallmarks of a private company back in that era was it didn't have too many shareholders. And for a long time, that number was 500 in the U.S. That at the point a company had 500 shareholders, it had to declare itself a public company and start trading uh, on some financial market. Recently, that number was increased to 2,500 uh, for... In a, in a general way, and even that's changed now, which, which I'm going to explain soon in this video. But anyway, the rules basically said if you had less than 100 people, the regulatory burden was way less. So if you imagine it, you're a player, you want to create an investment fund. Nope. As long as you could do that with less than 100 people, 100 people or less, that is, as long as you could stay under that 100 investor threshold, you didn't have to comply with incredibly expensive regulations to become regulated as an investment company. And of course, you also didn't have to trade publicly, so you didn't have to comply with the Securities Act very much either. This is the, the kind of low level of compliance, but now think about it. Let's say you want to raise a million dollars from a hundred people. That's $10,000 a piece. Back then, that was a lot. And, but now let's say you want to do something bigger. You want to raise a lot of money to do some big project. Well, the cost of regulation is just, if you want to avoid that, the way to go is to go raise money from large pools of wealth. Sorry, a little sunshine here. Get some vitamin D in me. All right, so how does that work? This is, this is where the whole idea of the venture capital company, a venture capital firm, right? It's a business. It's an investment company. But at least the individual venture capital funds are not regulated by the Investment Company Act in this way. Because why? Because they keep it to 100 investors or less. And around the time Silicon Valley was starting to become recognized as this tech center and just really a center of opportunity, of economic opportunity, and people from the East Coast said, look, we really should go there and capitalize this. And that's where the idea of the venture capital firm really took off. You need to raise a lot of money so that you could fund these startups they were precluded by law from raising money from the public. So, and also, if the only way they could raise money otherwise is if they happen to know 
a raft of millionaires who they could just call. That's hard work finding millionaires. <laughs> it's doable, but it's hard work. And here they want to try to do the company. So the VC firm said, okay, we'll find the millionaires. We'll get them organized in advance. And then we will then fund these startups. But by doing that, they also became an intermediary between the startups and the public. And so we're going to look at what that meant. But this is really all about people recognizing that the laws were restricting the flow of capital and trying to come up with a solution. Their solution was raise money from, again, large pools like the, the state pension funds and university endowments and, you know, ultra high net worth people who, you know, family offices is commonly called, you'll hear that term. Like, like people like the Rockefellers. Um, I recently heard there's 600 Rockefellers living off of the fortune created by uh, uh, the first Rockefeller. I'm sorry, I'm spacing out his name because I don't necessarily prep for these. I don't necessarily prep for these videos. Anyway, Mr. Rockefeller, the guy that made all the first money. And so they have a family office. That family office, they have their own like internal business just to manage the wealth for the family. And most wealthy people set up family offices because it's actually a big job to look after that and you need people to help. So that's what a family office is. So anyway, now you want to raise, I don't know, if you want to raise a billion dollars with only 100 people, that means the av 100 investors, that means the average investment is going to be 10 million apiece. And so that puts participation in startups out of the reach of even most millionaires. Because remember, if you've got 10, let's say you're a millionaire, you've even got 10 million in your portfolio, you're not going to write one check. You're not going to put your whole portfolio, your whole portfolio into the hands of one VC firm and just say, go for it. So this is where a lot of the problems with our, the whole design of our culture have, have come because the path from startup to trading publicly is very long for the most part in any meaningful way. And the minimum valuation, for example, to trade publicly on the NASDAQ in the United States is $50 million or somewhere around there. So that's a pretty big valuation. I mean, if you look at Uber, their first valued round was only $4 million. So they were far away from that. And in practice, it's not a very good idea to go public unless you can value yourself somewhere in the billions because these days, trading publicly is just a forum for short sellers and attacks. And unless you've got some muscle, you know, a whole team of people and lawyers to defend your stock against this kind of organized and legal stock price manipulation, uh, you're in trouble. So how is a small company supposed to get capitalized if they have to appeal to a venture capital firm and try to satisfy, and remember these people, these enterprises, these entities that are gonna write $10 million checks, 
they're risk averse, right? They don't want to lose, they don't want that VC to lose their investment, so that makes the VC firm risk averse. And we touched on that. So all this prevents innovation. And we think we have an innovative culture, and it's certainly better than maybe in the era of the kings, but these laws have literally stifled innovation. And now if we look at the public market like the shelves of a grocery store, now we can see there's a, a production chain. So let's think, if we think about some product getting on the shelves at a retailer, there's a manufacturer, and then often there's the, the wholesaler, and then it goes to retail. And of course, the bigger wholesale, the bigger retailers, like a company like Walmart, they get so big that they cut out the wholesaler altogether. And so that allows them to price things more cheaply. Well, if you think of the venture capital firms in a way, they're sort of a middleman because they're, they're buying into companies when they're too small to trade publicly. And their whole goal is to get those companies uh, big enough to trade publicly. And to do that, they need to generate a lot of profit for themselves. And in order to return an investment, because remember these companies aren't trading publicly, they've got to return some kind of capital back to their investors, usually within a five-year period. So not only are they middlemen, they can only invest in a certain kind of company with this incredible growth profile to go from zero to 50 million in valuation in less than five years. That's, that's a fast growth company, which is nothing wrong. But there's a lot of other great companies that may not have that growth profile. And what about them? They don't get anything. And that's the problem. That we have a lot of vegan companies, a lot of companies that are really solving big problems don't have the kind of return on capital that fit the narrow criteria of most venture capital firms. So what is the solution to that? So on a technical approach, what happened is in uh, 2012, the United States passed a law called the Jobs Act, and that opened the door for something called Title III, which is a variety of new regulations that allow for what I would call direct-to-market. So it allows the entrepreneur to raise money from the general public, again, as they could before, in, uh, before 1933. And all throughout the world, this has become understood that these regulations had actually stifled creativity, had prevented Western cultures from evolving at a rate that, to keep pace with other countries. And, you know, I'm not exactly familiar with how China finances their economy, but they've got a hell of a lot of startups there. And the West had to, had to do something to begin to free up the flow of capital into startups. So that's great. We have more freedom now. We don't have as much freedom as we had before 1933, but we have more freedom than we had in the last 87 years to discuss amongst ourselves as human beings how we want to design our culture and what companies we want to see grow. Whereas until now, 
those decisions were basically made by the 1%, the top echelon of the wealth class. Not even wealthy people in general, just the very top, tippy top of the pyramid. It's just not healthy because there are a lot of innovative ideas that come from communities that don't have wealth and don't know millionaires they can call and, and, and close private offers. And that doesn't mean those ideas aren't good or worth funding. And certainly with vegan businesses, we have other challenges because most people aren't vegan yet. So finding, finding vegan investors isn't so hard. Finding wealthy vegan investors is a little harder. Finding vegan investors at the very top of the 1%, that's hard. So that slows down progress in transforming our culture and solving the problems that vegans want to solve which touch on every part of our culture. So a huge opportunity, but the capitalization is, if we try to follow the old habits of, uh, of capitalism that evolved during this 97-year period or 90-something-year period, excuse me, 80-year period, between the Securities Act and the enactment of Title III, you know, a lot of habits got established to comply with those old rules. Now I've got new rules, now we can create new habits. And because there's freedom, then that means we can design with more peace. If we're not, if we can go direct to the consumer, for example, then we don't need to mark up the products. The investment products valuation doesn't have to be so high. And in fact, we can directly fund startups from the general public, and that's exactly what Vegan Launch is now doing. We've, you know, kind of tucking this announcement in there because, you know, we'll announce this formally, but Vegan Launch now has its own crowdfunding capacity. That means that people of any economic status can pool together to provide the very first checks to vegan offers. And you know, we go back, how do we prevent fraud? First of all, we want to educate investors on what to look for. We're not serving as intermediaries in that way. And that's something that you'll see evolve as we, you know, go into our website, you can sign up to, on our investment portal. And over time, we'll explain how, how to invest safely, but part of investing safely is not investing too much in any one offer. And, you know, things like how do we know they'll be vegan, all these things, right? When you add ethics, now you've got another question, you know, how do we know they're going to be ethical? And the fact is we can't really control people at that level, but we can go with strong intentions and spread the risk and not be ignorant like those people in the 20s who bet a lot of money on stuff which they had no idea who was running it or anything. <laughs> you know, it just sounded good. So that's a real, you know, this is a real breakthrough in my mind. The idea of assembling an ethical community of investors and entrepreneurs and financial organizers who want to put things together and make things work and design our 
future culture together and investing in the first round instead of what in my mind is the last round. And, you know, for example, you know, there's just so much talk about Beyond Meat. It's cooled off a little bit. They're not necessarily the center of the media every, every moment, but it was 10 years from their first investment to when they went public. And so this is, that's a long time to wait for the public to decide what kind of companies we want to grow. And really, in the end, it's not really a decision. It's just, it's like, oh, here's, here's something for you. And vegans represent, in my count, about 50, excuse me, about 5% of all of the investors. And yet the opportunities to invest in vegan companies on publicly traded stocks, if you consider Beyond Meat a vegan company, that's only $1 in 10,000. Instead of five out of 100 would be representational, you know, proportional representation on Wall Street would be $5 per hundred, instead we're at $1 per 10,000, if you consider Beyond Meat a vegan investment. And, uh, you know, that's a, I can see why vegans like it. Again, I don't, I'm not really here to judge them on that part, more just, it's a hot topic. And the point I'm making is I've made on our blog if you like what they're doing, you should have the right to invest in their first round, not their their first public, not their not when they go IPO onto the big boards of Wall Street at some billion dollar, multi billion dollar valuation. Why can't you invest when they're valued at a, maybe a couple million dollars, their first round? And now you can. <laughs> now you can. Now that I'm not saying this is going to, we're not going to get every deal this way. Because there's going to be, a, I think that over time people will see the virtue of this. Again, mainly because it, it increases the latitude. Any kind of direct-to-consumer marketing lowers the cost for consumers. That means it's a better value when you buy in, uh, all things being equal. Assuming the company's got a good plan, Right. If, if like let's look at Beyond Meat again. We can say they were a good. It was a good business plan. They make money. So all that being equal, it'll be when you invest in their first round, you're buying in at a much lower price, right? If you can buy straight from the manufacturer, if you can buy, I don't know, a shaver, right as it leaves the door of the factory, that's going to be at a much better price than if you buy it through a retailer. So that's really what we're talking about here, direct-to-market financing of vegan businesses. Now, because that pressure to create astronomical profits for the middlemen, I mean, astronomical is maybe too much of a judgment word. I'm not trying to criticize them for doing what they're doing because, again, they were just responding to the laws that were created, in most cases, decades before the idea of venture capital firms really took hold. But let's just say the venture capital firms, their need to operate their business model in their way requires them to take a very large amount of profit, which means that by the time the general public gets a chance, if they ever do, to invest in those companies, they're investing at a much higher price. 
And so it's, it's driving up the price of stocks without necessarily driving up the value. That's bad for investors, really, when you look at it. That creates dangerous situations where you're buying a high, if you buy a high price and low value, that's eventually the value will get found, just like Uber. That's exactly what happened with Uber. It had piles of venture capital money pushing that valuation up and trying to reclaim the money they invested. So Uber went public at an $80 billion market cap valuation, and within a few days, it lost a third of that, or yeah, something like that. And eventually, they went down to close to half of that because why they were overvalued, that the, the, the need for the venture capital middlemen to make back what they put in was stronger than creating value for the retail investors. And I'm, you know, that's not a good, that's not a good thing. That's not a good strategy for making the world a better place. Because when that happens, it just, you know, it, it gives everyone a bad feeling. Let's just say that. Well, let's not get too analytical on this little point. I think you can see where I'm headed with that. If we want to have companies now, let's say we want to have companies that are establishing new values in our culture, trying to get people used to the habit of treating employees as valuable, not even fairly, but in treating employees for the, the real value they're creating, treating the environment for how valuable it is. Of course, respecting animals' rights to have their own lives. If we want to do that and at the same time make enough profits for the middlemen, that just makes our job a lot harder. That doesn't mean we can't be every bit as profitable, that we can't grow as fast. It just makes the whole, that's just a drain in a way on the whole mission. So I'm not saying VC firms are bad. You know, the vegan VC firms have done a lot of good. They've really started showing people what's possible. Of course, again, by these same rules, only the you know top 1% of vegan investors can play along. So, and again, the forced exits are already leading a lot of vegan companies to then end up in mergers, right? An alternative to going public is to merge. And as soon as they merge with Procter & Gamble or Unilever or Group Danon or whatever, the first thing those big companies do is they kick out everybody that has any ethical bone in their body. And now they're just a brand. So that means that, you know, we really want to look at the life cycle of companies and use the tools that will allow them to carry their ethics forward all the way to becoming a, an established part of our culture. So that's another really important part. But the good news is that we have the tools. Vegan Launch has the infrastructure. We have the capacity to do this now. And if you've watched this far, and this sounds good to you, I invite you to visit our website, veganlaunch.com, and look around. And if it sounds good, uh, you know, sign up. There's no charge to sign up. Uh, we're using kind of a basic, uh, well, we're just not charging, let's just say that. There's no charge to participate at the moment. Uh, we'll be looking at our business model carefully over the next year. And to the extent that we're offering services that are, that are 
of higher value to you than what I've just said, we may charge for that. So, as always, thank you for listening to this uh, video, and thank you for being interested in learning what's took me quite a long time to learn. And I look forward to uh, continuing this conversation in our next video.